Well, we are in uh, Romans, uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, uh, the gospel of God concerning his son, he calls it in Romans chapter 1, and this is message number 12, and our title is The End of Boasting. Short passage this week, would you stand with me and let's read it together. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is God's word. You may be seated. You know, there's a a repetitive drumbeat in these first few chapters of Romans. Um, The cadence was set in chapter 1 when Paul wrote what is the central theme or the central thesis of this letter. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And two things just always stand out to me, uh, two things that I marvel at when I read those two verses. One is that that Paul says that the gospel itself is power. Um, It doesn't say it has power or that, you know, it gains power. It says that the gospel itself, the message of forgiveness of sin and the, and the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ is power. And it's the power of God that results in salvation to everyone who believes. The second thing that stands out to me here is, and, and this is important to the letter that he's writing here and certainly to what we're discussing today, is that he says, in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. That's, that's the effect of that expression, from faith for faith, as it is written, quoting the prophet Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul restates that same principle again in chapter 3, verse 20. He states it in the negative, but it's the same theme, for by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So works won't get you there. Again, in verses 21 to 22, he writes, But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been made known, has been brought to light, has been revealed apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I think Paul's on to something here, don't you? I mean, he he just keeps repeating himself. And and when someone repeats themselves, they're trying to make a point. Three major observations in this passage that, that I think are so significant. And it's just a short little passage, but it's packed. First of all, he says that the gospel exalts God's grace. You say, no, it doesn't say that. Well, bear with me. 
The gospel exalts God's grace. Here in verse 28, Paul states it again for emphasis. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And he wants us to know that because justification is by faith alone, that boasting is excluded. Boasting is excluded. When we were in chapter, uh, chap, no, same chapter, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3, uh, I, I talked to you about the, the diatribe, which when we think of a diatribe today, we think of somebody ranting at someone, right? But, but it really was a Greek form of communication in which um, there was a Q&A with kind of an imaginary questioner. He does that in verses 1 through 8. Uh, he does that again here in this passage. And that imaginary questioner, in, in both cases, is a Jew. And so Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting? In light of the gospel, in light of a, a righteousness that is from God, that is appropriated by faith, received by faith, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Well, what is boasting? Boasting is what the late Muhammad Ali refined to a poetic art form. Check this out. Who knocks out everybody and no one can whoop him. That's when that little Cassius Clay from Louisville, Kentucky came up and stopped Sonny Liston, the man who annihilated Floyd Patterson twice. He was going to kill me. But he hit harder than George. His reach was longer than George. He was a better boxer than George. And I'm better now than I was when you saw that 22-year-old undeveloped kid running from Sonny Liston. I'm experienced now, professional. Jaws been broke, been knocked, knocked down a couple of times. Bad. Been chopping trees. I done something new for this fight. I done wrestled with an alligator. That's right. I have wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. That's bad. Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone. Hospitalize a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. Bad dude. Bad. Fast. 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 Last night, I cut the light off my bedroom, hit the switch, was in the bed before the room was dark. Incredible. Fast. Incredible. And you, George Fullman, all of you chumps are going to bow when I whoop him. All of you. I know you got him. I know you got him picked. But the man's in trouble. I'm going to show you how great I am. <laughs> Well, that word boasting actually comes from the world of warfare. I guess boxing is a type of warfare. On the ancient battlefield, it was used to provoke or intimidate or humiliate an enemy. It's, it's what we hear the giant Goliath doing in 1 Samuel 17 when he taunted the ranks of the Israelite army. And in reality, none of us is a stranger to boasting. You may not be a loudmouth braggart or even a poetic one, but practically speaking, in your daily life, what you boast in is the thing of which you say, I am somebody because I have that. I can handle and defeat what comes against me today because I am this. 
What you boast in is what gives you confidence to go out and face the day. It's, it's what provides you with your competitive edge for the challenges of life. What you boast in is the well from which you draw your personal sense of identity and competency and self-worth so that in the final analysis, what you boast in is what fundamentally defines you. And so from a biblical perspective, the, the idea of boasting itself is morally neutral. That is, it can either be a positive or a negative. The Apostle Paul is talking about the means by which you and I who are sinners can be justified before God. And so let's observe first in the negative sense that boasting is the language of self-justification. The language of self-justification. In Luke 18, Jesus told a parable that featured a Pharisee and a tax collector. Notice the way that Luke introduces the parable in verse 9. He says, he, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes tithes of all that I have. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the question on everybody's mind, of course, as they listen to this very short and very pointed parable, is which of them did God favor? And probably most of them sitting there thought, well, the Pharisee, of course. And Jesus stymied them by providing an answer that no one expected. He said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, who humbled himself before God, who who didn't dare draw near to God, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, in the gospel, boasting in our works of righteousness as a means of justifying ourselves, Paul says, is excluded. But we only abandon our boasting. We only give that up when when we come to the realization that our best achievements have done and will will do nothing whatsoever to justify us in the sight of God. The prophet Isaiah said to God, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Tim Keller once said that to boast in our own achievements is like a drowning man clutching a fistful of hundred dollar bills above the waterline and shouting, I'm okay, I got money. 
prophet Jeremiah framed this so well. He said, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. To understand what Paul is trying to communicate here is to look really at his own experience. In Philippians 3, he tells us what he had once boasted in. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Well, that's quite a list, is it not? Family pedigree, ethnic identity, professional and educational attainments, moral and religious purity, but, but, then he adds, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, Paul says... I no longer boast in any of those things. I no longer derive my self-worth. I no, I no longer de- derive my sense of being okay before God from any of that. None of those things do I need any longer. None of those things help me achieve what is now my ultimate goal, that I may gain Christ. What Paul wants us to understand is that faith by its very nature if it's faith at all, rules out all boasting. Because as we saw last week, faith is not a doing, faith is a receiving. Someone said that faith is the hand of the heart, it's the receptor of the heart. It's it's a receiver, not a sender, not a giver. Faith understands that As much as we might want to, as much as we might strive to, there's nothing we can do to justify ourselves before God. And if we're to receive what God is offering us in Christ, then we've got to give up any claim. We've got to give up boasting. I've been reflecting this week on this thought and... Two ways stood out to me that, uh, in particular, that our human insistence on boasting just interferes not only with our understanding of faith, but, but interferes in a practical way with our daily walk with God. And, and the first one I was thinking about is this, that boasting stifles our worship. It stifles our worship. Why is that? A.W. Tozer was a 20th century theologian, and he he wrote this, without doubt, 
the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. He said in another place that the essence of idolatry, the essence of idolatry is to entertain thoughts of God that are unworthy of him. So as long as we allow ourselves to entertain thoughts, even subconsciously, that we have somehow contributed something, anything at all, to our salvation, we will never elevate God to his rightful place. We'll make him too small and we'll make ourselves too tall. And when we do that, we will not, cannot, do not worship with the absolute sense of awe and and humility and dependency and gratitude that true worship demands, that it requires of us. And the second thing that that boasting does in in a practical way that interferes with our walk with God is that it just results in insecurity. And you say, well, how's that? The accomplishments in which we are tempted to boast are inconsistent and imperfect at best, right? I mean, let's be honest. Each of us has some good moments, but we have more bad moments. We have, we have shining moments and when we have not so great moments. And when things are going well and we're feeling pretty good about ourselves, um, it, it's easy to put confidence in ourselves. But when those times of failure come, in those times of struggle, and those times of doubt, if our confidence rests in ourselves, if our confidence rests in how we feel about how we're doing at any given moment, our ability to, to rationalize, to justify ourselves, we'll find ourselves without a secure foundation on which to stand, and we will be insecure. Why? When we insist on self-justification, we deify ourselves. We put ourselves in the place of God so that in our moments of clearer thinking, we'll always be wondering where we stand with the real God. And that's among the reasons that Paul wants us to keep coming back to the truth that the gospel exalts, not us, the gospel exalts God's grace. Justification is by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace, God's unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may, what? Boast. Second major truth here is that the gospel reveals God's universal sovereignty. Or if you prefer his sovereign universality. And this time is Paul's the one asking the questions. He says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised, that is the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, that is Gentiles, through faith. And again, we kind of have to get inside the head of a Jew in Paul's day, or in any day for that matter. No one, no Jew, would, would deny that God is the God of all people. 
in the sense that God is creator, God is judge. So notice that first question, is God the God of Jews only? And that question anticipates a negative answer. It, 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 it anticipates the answer, no. Oh, because only the most prideful, only the most narrow, the only the most arrogant of Jews could ever say that God has no interest in the Gentiles whatsoever. The companion question there, is he not the God of Gentiles also, anticipates an affirmative answer. Paul turns them to the sentence, which is the foundational statement of Judaism. The sentence with which every synagogue service has always begun to this very day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Since there's only one God, he must be the God of all. So when we understand this correctly, when we really grasp that, it just demolishes every ultimate difference between Jew and Gentile as we stand before the Lord. There's one God, there's not one God for the Gentiles and another one for the Jews. God is one, and the way to him is the same for both Gentile and Jew. And that way is the way of simple, trusting faith. Well, what's Paul getting at? What's he trying to say? I think he's trying to say, first of all, that discrimination is excluded. Discrimination is excluded. Writing to the Galatian churches, he says, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you could insert any social, economic, racial ethnic divide into that verse that you would choose and it would still be true. All who belong to Jesus belong to the same family. Uh, We eat at the same table. To the Gentile audience in the city of Ephesus, Paul wrote, through him, through Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you... Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Third, the gospel upholds the law. And this is a point on which a lot of Christians are really confused. So I hope that you'll pay close attention. Paul asked the question, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, he writes. On the contrary, we uphold the law. That word in verse 31 that's translated overthrow, it means to nullify. It means to abolish, uh, eliminate, invalidate. And it really could seem to an observant Jew that the Christian answer to this question might be, yep, all that matters now is receiving by faith the righteousness offered at the cross, which is partially true. And yet Paul answers, by no means. 
Which is to say, no way. Not on your life. A thousand times no. Instead, we uphold the law. Now listen to this. It seems ironic, but a believer in Jesus, saved by grace, through faith, completely apart from the law, should love the law more than someone who is seeking to be saved by it. You want me to repeat that? Okay, I will. A believer in Jesus, saved by grace, through faith, completely apart from the law, should love the law more than someone who is seeking to be saved by the law. How can this be? It's this. Although keeping the law as a means of salvation has never applied, which we're going to see in the next chapter, chapter 4, the law has not been set aside, nor have its requirements ever changed. The gospel does not diminish the law one bit. The law of God is still here. It must still be kept, not merely swept under the rug or ignored. In order for anyone to stand in God's presence, the law must be obeyed. Lawlessness is excluded. Far from declaring that the law no longer matters. The gospel affirms that the law is of ultimate significance. Faith upholds the law in the sense that it fulfills all of the obligations of the law. Think about this with me. In the temple, an animal that was going to be offered as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of the people, had to qualify. And the qualification, the qualifying characteristic, was that that animal had to be without blemish. Without blemish. For example, Leviticus 4 says, He, that is a priest, shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. Leviticus 22 Speak to Aaron and his sons, and Aaron the brother of Moses. Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering, for any of their vows or free will offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep, or the goats, you shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. Why did the sacrifices have to be without blemish? The answer is because of what they foreshadowed, because of what they pointed forward to. They pointed forward to the ultimate and final sacrifice of atonement, Jesus Christ, 
the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, who was tempted in every way that you and I were, yet without sin. Jesus himself said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's the same word Paul uses here in Romans 3. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all, until all is accomplished. See, the gospel upholds the law because it fulfills all of the obligations of the law. And it does that first by demonstrating that law-breaking, law-breaking is so serious that it brings death and judgment. The Apostle Peter wrote that he, speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. When we put our faith in Christ, our sinfulness is given to him. He, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. When Jesus died on the cross, you were there. Your sins were present there. Every sin you have committed, are committing, ever will commit was there. Christ has died, taken the penalty for your sin. And so to the church in Corinth, Paul wrote, For our sake, he, that is God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, that is Jesus, so that in him, in Christ, in Jesus, we might become the very righteousness of God. See, law-breaking is so serious that it requires judgment. It requires death. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews says, there is no forgiveness of sin. And law-keeping, law-keeping is so vital and yet so impossible that no one can stand in the judgment unless someone else fulfills the requirements of the law for them. And someone did. Christ kept the law for us on our behalf. See, Jesus not only took our sin upon himself, we're not simply forgiven, but he goes a next step and he in turn gives us, gives to us as a gift, imparts to us the very righteousness of God. Christ gives us his perfect obedience to God's perfect law. And through that, we live. The gospel also upholds the law by providing us with the capacity to fulfill it. In Romans chapter 8, we will read in time, Paul saying this, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Past tense. God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, 
He condemned sin in the flesh. There's a condemnation that happened at the cross. Whose condemnation? Christ's. Mine. Christ was condemned for me. In whose flesh? Not mine. His. In order that the requirements of the law might be what? Might be what? What? Fulfilled. In who? What does it say? In us. We are looking at the same verse, right? In order that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. See, everything that was necessary for your salvation has been accomplished. Faith is a receiving, not a doing. So, as you respond to that, there's, there's only three real options that are open to us. If you reject the gospel and, and, and you say, well, I'm going to take my chances on obeying the law in order to be saved. You have to do one of three things, or two things in that case. One, you're going to have to change the law. You can appoint yourself judge in place of God, create an easier set of legal requirements, commandments that are less extensive, more reasonable, more achievable, in essence, creating a new religion. For example, if you don't prefer love your neighbor as yourself, you could substitute, well, just be a good person. Go to church, pay your taxes, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go out with girls that do. You know, you could, you could set out your own list of laws that, that are attainable. Otherwise, you must be crushed by the law. You can change it or you can be crushed by it because you know that you cannot meet its requirements. And in this scenario, one, or two, one of two things will inevitably occur as you are crushed by the law. You will either come to hate yourself for failing or you'll come to hate God because you can't meet his standards and fulfill his requirements or both. And in either of those two scenarios, changing the law or being crushed by it, you will be guilty of overthrowing and validating the law in the process. There is another alternative, however. And that is that you can accept that Christ has fulfilled the law for you and by faith receive his grace. And that's what I would urge you to do this morning if you have not done that. And I would say to you, you know, you, some of you this morning are trusting in having been baptized. Some of you are trusting in church membership. Some of you are trusting in having prayed a prayer at one time. Having had a spiritual experience at one time or another. And it's possible that in those experiences, in those moments, 
you didn't really trust in Christ. You trusted in the experience. And your faith needs to be in Christ. And I want to urge you this morning to accept that gift that Christ has given you. When he died, he said, it is finished, and it was. Religion says do. The gospel says done. And so Paul wrote to the Corinthians, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. That commendation comes through Christ, by faith, sins forgiven, the mantle of righteousness wrapped around you, accepted, commended by God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. We are in awe of it. We are humbled by it. We, our minds struggle to comprehend it. Because in its simplicity, is it is overwhelmingly powerful. How is it that you, God... could in one act of generous, sacrificial sacrifice, sacrificial atonement, forgive our sins, declare us righteous. And not only that, but wrap us then in the mantle of righteousness in the robe of sonship or daughtership in your kingdom and yet that's what you did in your great love and your mercy you sent Christ who accomplished everything that was necessary for our salvation so that all that is left to do is to receive it and Lord help us not to miss our moment Help us not to delay. But Lord, would you grant to us that gift of faith that leads to life, leads to righteousness. In Jesus' name and for his sake.